spring is on its way. We may have a few more winter weeks, but it'll be sporadic. We're on our way now to warm weather. And pretty soon, just about the time that Amen gets to be comfortable where the sun is up when we get here, the time will change. So we'll be in the dark again. So here we are. Good to see you. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10. And um, last time we talked a lot about how we deal with other people and our responsibilities for other people, our humility and our desire for other people to prosper in their relationship with God and so on. And here we see as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, is making his way to, to the cross, uh, he's doing a lot of teaching along the way. And his teaching along the way is really how we should take up our cross and follow him. And we've seen that a lot of this involves relationships with other people. And Jesus is tested in the text that's before us. And it's, it's kind of a classic um, Pharisee, uh, scribes, testing him to try to get him into trouble. But as, as always, Jesus uh, ends up testing them and ends up speaking about a very important issue. And that's exactly what happens here. They raise the issue. They want to talk about divorce and get Jesus to take a theological position that will alienate him both with the state and the church. And we'll look at that in a moment. But Jesus tests them and says it wants to talk about marriage, not divorce, and shows them God's intention in the first place. And it's a really good reminder for us if we would take up our cross and follow him. It's definitely going to involve our relationships with the opposite gender. If you're married, it's going to involve your relationship with your wife. If you have children, it's going to involve that as well. And it involves our uh, view and our participation in the health of marriage and the welfare of children in our society. So we, know that we start at home. We start with our own uh, obligations and duties. But then we have an obligation and a duty to the broader community as well, as we shall see. So let's pick, pick up here and see this important teaching of Jesus uh, in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Let's read. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them. 
Okay, we want to look at this, and, and obviously in two categories, and you can see it divided out in your NIV text there. We're going to talk about divorce and marriage, and we're going to talk about little kids. Now, in the first instance, verses 1 through 12, we see that following Jesus does entail a commitment to biblical marriage. So if you're going to follow Jesus, uh, you must engage this issue, whether you're single or married. You must engage the issue. It involves a commitment to a biblical view of marriage. Now, we're going to notice, first of all, that men naturally oppose Jesus' teaching. And let's look, first of all, at secular men. And we'll notice that here they're going into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Now, why is this important in verse 1? Well, because this is the area where uh, Herod and Tepus controlled. This was the area where John the Baptist got into trouble and got beheaded. Why? Because he talked about how Herod should not have married Herodias. And that happened months before this, but it's fresh on everybody's minds. And that's exactly where Jesus is, in that area across the Jordan, that is on the east side of the Jordan, when this whole question is raised. Do you think the scribes and the Pharisees would like to get Jesus in trouble with Herod and Tepas? Well, yes, of course he would. They did it once, and John the Baptist got rid of him. Now they're going to do it to Jesus. And what we find is that uh, the biblical view of marriage is very unpopular in secular culture. It was very unpopular with Herod and Tepas and with Herodias. And they didn't like to hear anything about it from prophets like John the Baptist, nor from Jesus. It's the same, same in our own day. And the more rich and powerful people are, the more they just begin rewriting their own rules about marriage. Because, doggone it, it, it restrains me. It makes, you know, if I follow the Bible, I can't quite do what my, my lusts want to do. And I have power and influence and money, and I can do what I want to do. And you see it all over the place. Uh, it's, uh, it's now considered very narrow-minded to adopt a biblical view of marriage. So secular men certainly don't like uh, what Jesus is going to have to say uh, about marriage at all. Uh, neither do religious men. Notice that the Pharisees come and test him. And four times you find this word tested in Mark's gospel. Three times, as in this instance, it applies to the Pharisees. In the first instance, from Mark chapter 1, it applied to the devil when the devil was testing him in the wilderness. So it's a word that it, it can be linguistically neutral, but in Mark's usage of it, it generally applies to someone who with evil intent is challenging Jesus Christ and asking him a question. Or suggesting another way. And isn't it interesting that in all four cases, starting with the devil in Mark chapter 1, the testing involves uh, taking the scriptures and suggesting another route. And you'll see this as when they test him in their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What do they have in mind? Well, we, you can see from those later verses what they have in mind. They have in mind that Moses seems to have allowed it in their opinion. Now, in order to understand this, leave your finger at Mark 10. Go back to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 24. And here's the text. 
that uh, they refer to in their minds. If a man, this is Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, page uh, 285. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if later she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man. And her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. This would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Now, what the scribes and Pharisees had done through the centuries, actually, was to look at this verses 1 and 2. Any, if she becomes displeasing to him, and this phrase, something indecent or something shameful about her. The big debate among the Pharisees was, uh, what is this something shameful or something indecent in verse 1? Because obviously they're saying Moses allows for divorce. And you can see it right there in Deuteronomy 24. Now, this is what they were thinking. Now, we're going to see that what they did was they took the word of God and with a little slate of hand distorted it so that they end up having God saying the opposite of what he means. And this is so common. Uh, If you look at sexual ethics in our own, uh, those of us who, who are, you know, in our 50s or older, you remember the revolution that came toward the end of the 50s and into the 60s and the sexual revolution. And by the time you got to the end of the 60s, you know, it was make love, not war. I mean, and everybody was doing it. And uh, in that one decade, the whole cultural mentality of what was appropriate about uh, sexual ethics had just almost completely shifted. And now it's just common knowledge. Uh, it's not revolutionary anymore. And uh, the whole idea of a biblical marriage and the sanctity of it. And uh, then, of course, the whole idea of whether it's a male and a female or two males or two women gets very confused. And now, before long, if things go in the same direction, that will be common knowledge as well. Uh, But the way it usually goes is you, you begin with secular arguments against a biblical ethic. And then what happens is people start using the Bible to prove an unbiblical point. And haven't you noticed that? Uh, that it's now the church that's uh, claiming that it's an issue of justice for men to be able to marry men and women to marry women. And they're using the Bible and the Christian tradition. So what happens is you start off with an argument that's obviously alien to the Christian faith. And the worse it gets, you, then, then the devil will do just what he did with Jesus in the, in the wilderness. He'll end up taking the scriptures themselves and try to prove his point. And that's what the devil was doing in the wilderness with Jesus. He was testing Jesus with the scriptures. He says, is it not written? And that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees do. It's what we do. Uh, that is the height of evil, is when you, you take the very word of God to try to prove the opposite of what God really intends. It's, it's an ancient heresy, an ancient technique, and it was being done here in, in Jesus' day. These folks, these uh, religious folks, did not uh, like what Jesus was going to have to say because they didn't like what the Bible had to say. 
Now, this debate about what this something indecent was, here's the way it went. There were two schools of thought by the time of Jesus, two key rabbis who were cited as authorities. One was Rabbi Shammai, that's S-H-A-M-M-A-I, Shammai. Shammai was the more conservative of the rabbis, and he said that this thing indecent had to do with sexual immorality. Then there was the school of Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. Rabbi Hillel had interpreted this to be anything that was offensive or odious or even irritating to the husband. That was the something indecent. Most people preferred the interpretation of Hillel. But it was a great debate, and you could quickly divide a religious audience by taking a position on this. It was a hot topic. You, can, you know, there are topics today where you can quickly divide. We could, if we wanted to have uh, someone come in and divide this group uh, that we didn't like, and we wanted at least half this group to be very un- unpo- uh, for him to be unpopular with half of this group, we could say, okay, what's your position on baptism? <laughs> well, at half of you say, well, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. So you see what they're doing to Jesus. They're at least going to get half the crowd uh, upset with him, especially if he takes a conservative position. So they're, bring, they're raising the question because, number one, it's going to get him in trouble with Herod and Tepas. Maybe, maybe they can get him killed. But certainly they can make him unpopular from a religious uh, point of view. So what Jesus has to say is basically what the Bible is going to have to say. And we see that it's going to be very unpopular with folks there. Now, as we look at verses 3 through the, end, the rest of this section, 3 through 12, we're going to see that Jesus does indeed teach us the truth. We would naturally oppose the truth. We want to create a God and create a Bible and create a theology and create a culture uh, that tolerates uh, all of our peccadilloes, all of our little desires, all of our uh, problems, all of our sins. But Jesus is going to teach the truth uh, no matter what, whether some consider it divisive or not. And notice what he does in verse 3. He, said, he goes right to Moses and he says, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? And then notice what they say. Moses permitted. Now look at the contrast there, verses 3 and 4. What did Moses command you? And they say Moses permitted. And then see what Jesus is going back to. He's going to go back to what Moses commanded. And he will say at the beginning of creation. In verse 6. Now, here is what Jesus is showing us, in, in, uh, first of all, in verses 3 through 5, that what is regulated is not necessarily mandated. What is regulated is not necessarily mandated. Now, Jesus is wanting to direct them to what the original intent was with Moses and what the commandment was. What they wanted to do is back up and say, yeah, but look, he, he, made, he permitted it. And you know what? You can, you can find the same thing. For example, look in, leave your finger in Mark and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is page 1851. 1 Corinthians 7 is a chapter on marriage. Maybe we'll make reference to this again before the morning's out. And notice here. Paul gives a command. And in one instance, he says, not I, but the Lord. And in later verse 12, he says, I, not the Lord, 
so uh, we can talk about that some other time, I suppose. But he says here in verse 10 to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. OK, there's the command. Now, look at verse 11. But if she does. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? But if she does. So here's a command. A wife must not separate from her husband. But, knowing you, if you do, let me tell you what to do about it. Now listen, if your mother loves you, she does the same thing with you too. Now don't you go out there and drink like all the rest of those boys. But if you do, <laughs> don't try to drive home. You know? Well, you think your mother loves you more than God does? I mean, God is giving us commands all the time. And he also then goes to the next level because he knows the hardness of our heart. And he says, now look, I told you not to do that. But now if you do this, what you do about it? I told you not to lie. But if you do, confess your sin, make restitution, get things right. So in God's love for us, he tells us what to do, what not to do. And then he anticipates that like a bunch of knuckleheads, we're not going to do what he said. So he gives us a, the next level of commandment. And so he says here in verse 11, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. All right, back to Mark 10. Now, it would be perverted for us to say. 1 Corinthians 7.11, that's our 7.11 verse. Paul, Paul says that a woman could leave her husband because he says if she does, all she has to do is just remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So Paul said it right there. Wouldn't that be a perversion? Of course it would. And we'd say, yeah, but the real intent is in verse 10. Don't do that. It's only because you're a knucklehead that you have verse 11. That's the knucklehead verse. And Deuteronomy 24 is the knucklehead chapter. Because God gives his commandment. This is what Jesus is going to tell us. He gives his commandment. And then in his grace toward us, his law is gracious. It's a law for sinners. It leads us to Christ and to redemption. It also picks, helps us pick back up. So it doesn't matter how bad your life is, how miserable your marriage is, how bad your sex life is. It doesn't matter about God. This law is comprehensive. It will pick you right up where you are and address your situation. But don't pervert... God's grace and his law so that you turn his commandments and his ideal ethical life upside down and inside out. And that's what Jesus is saying. Let's look at his intention from the beginning. So, yes, we are aware that he gives us instructions when we sin. But let's go back and look at his original commandment. You all want to talk about divorce and how you can get out of your marriages you don't like. But let's go back and look at marriage. And look at God's intention from the beginning and what, what it's all about. What was meant as a barrier to abuse against women has become a bridge to divorce in their minds. And what chapter 24 in Deuteronomy did was to protect the woman. If you're going to divorce her against the law of God, give her a certificate of divorce that then sets her free to remarry. Don't just throw her out and leave her condition unsettled. Don't just throw her out onto the streets and make her a prostitute. Give her a certificate of divorce. Enable her to remarry and find protection in another family. That was the whole purpose for Deuteronomy 24. And so, you're not, you know, we're not supposed to divorce. But if you do, you better give your, your ex-wife a good settlement. 
You better be sure that the children are taken care of. You see what I'm saying? In other words, it's one thing to divorce your wife, and then it's another thing to, to leave her open to all kinds of abuse and disadvantage. And that's, that was the purpose of, of Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus is not here abrogating or laying aside chapter 24. And I've seen some good New Testament scholars make that mistake on their comments on this text. They say that Jesus is abrogating or laying aside 20, chapter 24. In, in, in other words, he's disagreeing with the Pharisees here and saying that chapter 24 doesn't apply anymore. We're just not going to have any more divorces. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that, like we're saying here, what is regulated is not mandated. He is saying that when God gives you the next level of commandment, when you've screwed up, doesn't justify the screw up. It just simply in love shows you where to go after the screw up. I hope you're with me on this. And then secondly, in chapter in verses six through twelve, we see that God's design is very clear. And he's going to give his design, God's design for marriage here. And he says, you know, at the beginning of creation, and we turn to the pages of Genesis one and two, God made them male and female. That's the way he made them. His design is clear. It's marriage is between a man and a woman. Hello. And that's because he made us male and female. He made us to be intimate. This was his design. It's very clear. There's not anything really confusing about this in the Bible unless you want to be confused. And there are some people who want to be confused. And uh, if the state wants to make marriage legitimate for two men or two women, I personally think that's a bad move. I was talking with a politician not too long ago in, in the Congress who, who asked my opinion about that. I, I told him that, you know, uh, we Christians obviously have a position on that coming from the Bible, Bible, and it's not confusing at all for us. But the question to ask in the state for any politician is obviously, what's in the best interest of the state? You know, so that we don't impose religious peculiarities upon people who are not Christians. So a politician, a government, a legislator has to think about what is in the interest of the state. And my comment to him was, it seems to me that the state has no interest in giving tax deductions to people who are not rearing the next generation's children. And the reason the state does have an interest in giving a tax deduction to married families is that the state does have an interest in the rearing of the next generation of children, people who are living together as man and wife. So it's not just a moral argument, although I, I would make one as a Christian in the, within the church and anyone who's interested, but in the state, there's a civil argument that the state has no interest in arbitrarily giving tax deductions to people who have sexual preferences. What, what interest does the state have in that? None. So the state now is being biased in giving or suggesting in some states to give a tax deduction to people who want one out of their sexual lust. Well, hello. Uh, maybe I want one, too, for something I want to do. Let's have a tax deduction for gambling losses. I like to gamble. Why should we have a tax deduction for you when you have business losses and I can't have one for my gambling losses? Uh, and on and on it goes. And the state has no interest in it. But the state is just playing politics. Because there's an interest group that wants a tax deduction. It's like those in AARP. You know, we're growing to be a very, very powerful group. And the baby boomers are going to 
you know, really be dominant. And, you know, larger and larger percentages of the population is going to be older. You just watch all the tax deductions and favors that are going to be given to retired people because they're a big voting bloc. Whether the state has an interest or not, the politicians have an interest because we're a voting bloc. So that's what's going on in the state. And uh, I can understand it, and I think it probably is helpful for us, gently, to remind the state of its interests. That we have an interest in the children. We have an interest in taking care of the next generation and rearing them uh, in a healthy way. Uh, And let's remind the state of our interests that we all have together, regardless of our religious background or whether we're secular or religious. But in the church, gentlemen, we not only have an interest in the next generation, we have an interest in the glory of God. And this is non-negotiable. And the tragedy in my mind is, is much more visible when the church itself is now beginning to make arguments in favor of violating what Moses commanded in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a violation into the face of God. It's not just a violation against the children, although it is. It's not just a violation against the church or the state, which it is. But it's a violation against God himself. I'm not trying to be moralistic. I'm just saying, look, God has given us his law. It's for our good. And we are very foolish when we choose to go another way. Foolish. It's our own damage. You think you're going to get away with this? We're going to be the ones damaged by it. God will retain his own glory, his own justice, his own holiness. And his holiness will be vindicated in every way. Believe me. We're the ones who are going to self-destruct. So it's out of humble obedience to the Lord who made us and gave us his word that we must be very clear on the matter. So he says from the beginning, make no mistake about it, God made us this way, male and female. We were made that way. It was made, this is what marriage was to consist of. It was to be an institution that's consistent with the way he created us. Secondly, marriage is intimate. He says, the way he made us, a man will leave his father and mother and be united or be bonded. And the two will become one flesh. This word united is the same word that God uses for uniting himself to us in covenant. He'll be bonded to us. And he says, God has made us in such a way that he gave us an institution that's consistent with creation. And then he gave us in his unperverted, natural creation. He gave us a desire. We look and go, wow, <laughs> there's, there's a woman. You know, bones of flesh of my flesh, bones of my bones, she shall be called woman because she came out of man. So you see how God made us. He made it to be intimate. He made us to be attracted to one another. And, of course, we find that pretty soon the very things that attracted you in that sweet little girl that you were dating, uh, she now, the very same traits become a massive annoyance, don't they? Oh, she's so organized. She's trying to organize the daylights out of your own life. And you can't wait to get out of the house so you can be free from her organizing principles. Oh, she's so sweet. Yeah, she's sweet to everybody. has no time for you anymore. Loves the grandchildren, but doesn't care a rip about you anymore. Oh, she's so brilliant. Yeah, it wins every argument. You never have a chance. 
She's so sociable. I just love being around her because I just connect with all these other friends. Yeah, and you can't get a word in edgewise anymore. You know how it goes. The very thing that you think is going to bond you together and make you appreciate her so much now just repels you. And uh, so what, what do you do? Well, let's begin with this. God says that marriage is meant to be intimate. That's the way he made it. And uh, when you look in the scriptures, you see several descriptions of this intimacy in marriage. One of them, I guess my favorite, is in Malachi when the prophet is excoriating the Israelites for leaving their old Jewish chicks and going for these young pagan chicks, you know. These people are a little wrinkly, you know, kind of past their prime. And besides that, they've been on a long trip to Babylon and back, not looking so good. And these, these local chicks, you know, they're available, they're young, woo, fresh. And they were leaving these and going to these. And here's what Malachi said. He said, what in the heck are you doing here? And he says, she was the partner of your youth. It's the word partner. She was the partner of your youth. And you're going to leave your partner and go for someone who's a sexual object. And the word partner, you'll also find, it's not a commonly used, but it's used a few places in the Old Testament. And uh, it's used there in Malachi. It's also used in Proverbs with respect to marriage. But the other place it's used that's most interesting is in Daniel. I believe it's Daniel 2. When, uh, when Daniel is talking about himself and his three, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were partners. So the way the Bible describes this uh, legal covenant, binding covenant that we have, is that it also has an intimacy. So you have the integrity of the covenant, then you have the intimacy of the covenant. So it's not just a legal entity that is to be unbreakable, but it's to be very, very close, and this is your partner. So you know how you feel in the business community or in the professional community if, if a partner gets treated unfairly, somebody ditches a partner or, or ruins their reputation or doesn't deal with them in an honest, upright manner. That really screws up your reputation real fast if you do that to a partner. But, you know, we don't think another thing about putting a lifetime partner aside. You know, everybody does that. That's fine. You know, things change. New season of life. And uh, Malachi says, you hang on a minute. That's your life partner from your youth. And you're bound to her. What are you thinking? And he goes on to say that divorce is like an act of violence covering her in blood. And, of course, those of you who have been divorced will inevitably come back to me and say, you know, I knew, I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but I had no idea how hard it really is. You feel the violence in your own heart and soul, how, how it just wrenches your heart out of your chest. And a number of you here have been through this, uh, and the rest of us have had it happen in our families or among our friends, and we've seen how painful it is. The reason is it's meant to be very intimate, and you, you tear that apart, and you are wrenching apart something that was meant to be sewed together. It's extraordinarily painful. So realize that intimacy is meant to take place. You say, well, how is it supposed to happen when now the things that used to attract me now repel me? What am I supposed to do? Well, here's, here's what the Christian, the one who follows Christ, realizes just in this text. He has just said he's going to go to Jerusalem and die on a cross. And he said, now I want you to take up your cross and follow me. Now let's think about what difference that cross makes. That cross, first of all, shows you that the worst sinner in the room is yourself. That cross shows you what God had to do to get your sins forgiven. That's how bad they were. The cross also shows you how greatly loved you are 
in, the, in spite of your sin. So the cross reveals your sin, and then the cross saves you from your sin. And in light of your biggest problem being handled, your soul is satisfied, and everything else gets into perspective. Dying of cancer gets into perspective. Going bankrupt gets into perspective. Not having all your needs met in marriage gets into perspective. Everything's in perspective. When you realize you were destined for hell, and you deserved it, and God completely turned that around by an act of unmitigated grace towards you. Your biggest problem is solved, brothers. So let's not get all worked up over anything in this life that's only temporary. Your eternal problem has been solved. The cross gives us perspective. The second thing the cross does is that just as Jesus died to his own felt needs in order for us to live, we're to walk in his steps. And you die to your own felt needs and you begin to serve the other person. And you think about her felt needs instead of your own. There's a paradigm shift that you have to continually work on every day. And this is the key to marriage. That you get your, broken, your emotionally broken eyes off your own unmet needs. You get it off that. You get your eyes onto what you perceive to be the felt needs of your wife. And you plug yourself into that. And you find your satisfaction in bringing her joy instead of bringing yourself joy. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy? He was going to save you. And you are his crown and his pleasure. You are his glory because his death accomplished your resurrection. And so he's finding himself completely satisfied. We are told in Isaiah 53 that he was satisfied when he looked upon the accomplishments of his suffering. And that's the way we find our satisfaction is that you can train yourself. It's kind of like, you know, you go through all kinds of headaches and heartaches and agonizing to make your business successful. Some of you have worked 75, 80 hours a week for certain seasons of your life to make your business successful. Think about all that pain and agony, but you had your eye on the target and you saw that business grow and you saw things happen and you saw yourself with new customers, and you saw the top line grow, and you saw the bottom line grow, and you look at those numbers, you get real satisfaction over seeing the accomplishment. And I'm, I'm satisfied for you too. And so you can see it in business, but you can't see it in marriage. And the reason is, you are wanting something out of that marriage that you should be getting from Christ alone. Christ is the one who will fulfill your needs. You've got to look to Him to do that. It's the only way you can be focusing now on the needs of your wife. That's what it means to take up your cross in marriage. You die to the demand of having your needs met. And you only now demand that God would use you in meeting the needs of your wife. That's the trick. Do I do it? No! But I'm trying. And I invite you to try too. And you won't do it perfectly until you get home. I'm talking about home in heaven. But that's the trick. That's what the cross does. And Jesus is showing us from the beginning... Intimacy was God's picture. When sin entered the race, this is the only way you're ever going to get intimacy is with a cross. You're going to have to die. But if you're following Christ, that's exactly what you said you're going to do. You took up your cross and died. So let's get on with it. And most men will say, oh, yeah, everywhere except in my relationship with my wife. Now, there it's bilateral. To hell with that. Because that's where that idea came from. Begin with your marriage. Don't leave the marriage out as the exception. Begin there. That's where the action is. As a matter of fact, you want to know how much you really grasp the cross? There. 
That's your most intimate relationship by God's ordination. It's the most trying one for most men. And it's the greatest testing ground for how much you grasp the cross. So Jesus is saying that design is clear and marriage is meant for intimacy, even between two sinners. And you cannot control your wife. You cannot make her an intimate person. But you can be promoting intimacy by moving toward her and seeking to meet her needs. Then C, marriage is a divine ordinance. It is what God has joined together. You notice that when Jesus makes reference to what Moses wrote, he said that God did it. Jesus' attitude toward the Old Testament, what the Old Testament says, God says. And that's also his attitude toward the New Testament, as we could see if we had time. So he speaks of it as what God has joined together. And he says, let no man put asunder. Now, in Jewish law, it was the husband who could affect divorce. So Jesus is not speaking here of a judge. Let no judge put it asunder. He's basically saying that let no husband put it asunder. Because the husband was the one who had the power legally to do it in Jewish law. And you know what I've found through the years, maybe of 25 years of marital counseling? Most of the time, if the man would change his perspective and change his behavior, this marriage would be spared. Most of the time. Uh, I couldn't say that of the, of the woman. Uh, even if she were to change, I can't say most of the time the marriage would be spared. But I can say about 95% of the time with men. I, you know, maybe that's a chauvinistic thing to say. Women, if you're listening on tape, uh, don't make yourself any excuses. But it's true. Men have tremendous power in regulating the integrity and the intimacy of that marriage, especially the integrity of the marriage and keeping the covenant together. So he says, uh, and I, you know, I think he means like nobody, male or female, put it asunder. But I think it would be appropriate even today, given the emotional power that men have in the marriage to say, let no man, let no husband put it asunder because God ordained it. It's his institution. We didn't dream it up. We didn't say, well, this would be a nice way to run the family. And this would be this would make for a better state. This would make for a better church. No, God gave it to us by revelation. Marriage. Then D, marriage is a permanent bond. Let man not separate. And he goes on to say anyone in verse 11 who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Wow. So he's saying if you. Divorce your wife, you're an adulterer. And then notice what he says in verse 12. Given what we've said so far, this is very interesting because in verse 12, it's the only instance in the Gospels where Jesus addresses the woman. Now, why would that be? But notice what he says in verse 12. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Why would he say that when in Jewish law, a woman couldn't divorce her husband? Only the man could affect divorce. Why would he mention that in verse 12? Well, because of Herodias. Jesus is making it very clear. Let's be really clear about this. In the Jewish culture and in the Roman culture, neither the man nor the woman is to uh, sue out for a divorce. 
because it is adultery in both cases. Now, the question will be, can a man ever be legitimately divorced? Uh, look at uh, the paper that we passed out. It was a, a call to our congregation uh, seven years ago from our session. Uh, we drafted this paper for our congregation just to establish what our standards would be. You might take a look at this later, but look on verse three and pages three and four. And notice that we say, first of all, I'd like to back up for just a moment and notice the first line on, on page two under where it says the Christian in divorce. We affirm at the outset that any discussion of divorce should be conducted in a spirit of genuine humility. Difficult ethical problems arise in any divorce and completely innocent parties are seldom to be found. Few experiences in life are more agonizing than the breakdown of a marriage. It is often exceedingly difficult to know and to do what is right, but with prayerful and diligent study of God's word, we can build a godly foundation for decision-making. Then turn back to page 3. So we want to acknowledge, first of all, this is very painful. Whenever I talk about uh, marriage and divorce, the ones who cheer me on the most are the people who have been through a divorce. And I can just tell you, in this room, the people who want you most to make your marriage work, the people who want you most to avoid divorce, are the men in this room who have been through it. So uh, it's extremely painful, and I'm very sorry for those of us here who have been through it. But look what we say uh, at the bottom of page 3, adultery or other gross sexual immorality. In Matthew 5, 31, 32, and Matthew 19, 3 through 9, Jesus cites marital unfaithfulness, it's the Greek word porneia, from which we get pornography, as the grounds for divorce. So in Mark, Jesus is making his point very clear about God's intent. And the intent was marriage and would not to divorce each other. In Matthew 19, Jesus is stating the full doctrine of marriage and divorce. And in Matthew 19, he makes it clear, except for sexual immorality, he says, porneia. So that because of the hardness of men's hearts, there is an escape clause, if you will, in marriage. And it has to do with sexual immorality. Porneia refers to gross sexual immorality, which breaks the one flesh principle. Matthew uses this broad Greek word rather than the Greek word moikeia, which refers to adultery in a narrow sense. That is sexual union with someone other than one's spouse. He thus, we thus conclude that Jesus allowed divorce in cases of adultery in the narrow sense, and gross sexual immorality that breaks the one flesh principle. You may, you may say, what is gross sexual immorality? Well, we could have long debates about that. But it's something that breaks the one flesh, one flesh sexual principle with your mate. For example, if someone's having an ongoing uh, Internet affair and will not break it off. That's gross sexual immorality. That's a continual renunciation of the sexual bond with your wife and creating a romantic link with someone else unrepentantly. I would say, no, there's, that's kind of out there. There are cases that are worse, like bestiality, homosexuality. That would break uh, the one uh, flesh principle as well. But then look at B, at the top of the page. In 1 Corinthians 7, where we just were, 12 through 15, the scriptures cite the case of a man who becomes a Christian after marriage. His wife, however, remains an unbeliever but is willing to continue living with him. The injunction is that he is not to divorce her. But if she were to leave him, she is to be allowed to do so. But if she were to leave him, 
she is to be allowed to do so. This case of desertion is the abandonment of the marriage by an unbelieving spouse with the Christian spouse, with the help of his or her elders, is able to, to, unable to reconcile. When deserted, the believing man or woman is not bound. That is, he or she is free to divorce. So what Paul does is he works out the sexual immorality in one more specific case. It is sexually immoral, unrepentantly, over a continued and long period of time, to forsake the marriage bed. That's a sexual violation. If a spouse does that over a period of time and abandons the marriage bed, then that's gross sexual immorality. And, of course, that's done when a person abandons the home. So Paul has just worked out the principle that Jesus gave us in Matthew 19 in a more specific case that affects this first-generation case where you have an unbeliever and a believer. They both married as unbelievers. One becomes a believer, and then the unbeliever abandons. What can the believer do? And Paul says, live in peace. Let them go. And then you're free to remarry. You're not bound anymore. And certainly death would be another way in which the marriage bond is broken by death. And one is free to, to remarry. So, but in the case of divorce, you see there the two, the two biblically rooted cases for divorce. That is, gross sexual immorality, specifically adultery. And secondly, irreconcilable desertion. And the Westminster Confession of Faith for Presbyterians here would also say, and you see that on the back of your paper there. This is sort of the second Presbyterian version of the chapter 24 on marriage in the uh, Westminster Confession. We've altered some things there. But in that confession, you'll see that we are not to sue out for a divorce under our own judgment in our own case. Because when you get to that point, you are so biased and so hurt and so angry, you can't make good judgments in your own case. That's where the elders in your church, the spiritual leaders in your church should be involved in that uh, event so that they can make judgments about whether there is a ground for divorce or not. Uh, You can read the rest of that paper if you'd like more details. So Jesus is saying marriage is a permanent bond. Of course, for the hardness of men's hearts, there are those two escape clauses, but it wasn't intended that way from the beginning. Now, secondly, verses 13 through 16 Following Jesus also entails a commitment to children. In verse 13, a men naturally oppose Jesus' teaching. Once again, you can see how we're naturally opposed to what God says about marriage. We're naturally opposed to what he says about children. We want to keep the children away. They're not that significant. We don't want to invest in them. Let the women do that. And the men wanted to keep the children away from Jesus, the great teacher. And Jesus was indignant. The only place you'll find this word about Jesus, he was indignant at his own disciples, not the Pharisees, his own disciples, the elders, the men in the church. Bring those children to me, he said. So we are naturally, we naturally dismiss and undervalue what God is valuing. He values the children. B, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus indignantly teaches us to love the children. Let the little children come to me. Because two things. First of all, the kingdom belongs to them. The kingdom is made up of them. And secondly, the kingdom belongs to those who receive it like a child. So we need the children in the kingdom so that we can learn how to take the kingdom. How do you, take, how do you enter the kingdom? As one who's completely dependent, who trusts your father. Completely dependent. Trusting your father. That's the way you come into the kingdom. We've got to have the children in the kingdom to remind us with this physical sign of what it means for us to enter the kingdom. And then thirdly, you see that Jesus blesses the children. He puts his hands on them and blesses them. 
And gentlemen, we have an obligation to promote the welfare of children in our society, and there are many ways in which their welfare is not being promoted. This whole pornography thing just destroys children, destroys marriages, destroys the family. Uh, some of the laws in our society are not very helpful at all. Uh, when we look at children in Greco-Roman culture, uh, you know, we have letters extant that show us that a man on one occasion wrote home to his wife. This is a, a Roman citizen. And, and uh, she was pregnant and giving birth, and he was away. And he wrote her and said, you know, if it's a boy, welcome him into the family. If it's a girl, just put her out, you know, to be exposed. This was common practice. Well, we're doing the same thing. Twenty-three percent of our pregnancies in Shelby County end up in abortion. We just put them out. And, and, and our rate is worse than the Roman Empire when they put the kids out to expose them. So we obviously have a culture that does not promote and protect children. But having said all that, once again, just as we were talking about in marriage, we have an obligation to the state, we have an obligation to the church, but our first obligation is to our own homes to be sure that we are modeling and living out the cross-centered life in marriage. It's also true with our children. So for heaven's sakes, literally, do not underestimate your own children. And the value and the power that you have with your own children and your own grandchildren. Dwight Morris is sitting back there, a member of Amen for many years, uh, is uh, married to a woman who is my eighth grade girlfriend. <clears throat> Dwight, you snaked me. He ended up with a prize, like Kathy, and uh, we, we actually grew up together as kids. And her um, mom and dad are dear friends of mine. And her dad just died this few, a few weeks ago, really. And Dwight had told his father-in-law, uh, just a couple of years ago, Pa, you really need to leave a testimony with your grandchildren. So his father-in-law did, and Dwight gave me this. Here, here's what uh, uh, James Markham wrote to his grandchildren. He said, I may not be around much longer, or I may be around and not be able to let you know how I feel. I don't talk about God a lot like your Nana, uh, but I know him. I know with all the bad stuff I've done, the only way I'll get to heaven is with Jesus. I know that because He died for me. Someday I'll be in heaven. I need to let you know that. I'm proud of how you talk about your religion and God. I'm shy about talking about my religion, but I want you to know I believe in Jesus is the reason I'm going to heaven. I love you, Paul. It's just a real simple thing. Let your grandchildren know where you stand. Let your children know where you stand. And then live it out. And pass on a legacy that's a, a, more than what you can give them with a big bank account. Pass on a legacy of faith to your children. Let them know where you stand. Let them know what you believe. Let them know what you care about. Let, the, let them know how important you think they are. Bring the little children to me. Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Do not keep your children away from intimacy with you. Do not keep them away from knowing your heart. Bring them close to you and into your life. Let them see what you believe and feel. Share your heart with them. And you will be nurturing the children for the next generation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for uh, your love for us. And we know that in your law, it is all written for our welfare. For us to enjoy you and enjoy your creation. Enjoy one another. Enjoy life. Help us to embrace what is good for us. Help us to embrace what is glorifying to you. 
We especially pray for this area of marriage and children. And God, would you especially renew our knowledge of your forgiveness for all the sins we have committed. For those who have been divorced and know that they contributed to it. For those of us who have remained married but who have given our wives many reasons to want to divorce us. Lord, help us all in the midst of our own sin and failure, every one of us, to know how much you love us and how you have completely forgiven us in Christ. And no matter what our status is today, help us to remember that you pick us up right where we are uh, and you will show us the way and you will make us useful in life as we walk with you and take up our cross and follow you. So, Lord, encourage us today and send us out as men who will be a blessing to the women who are around us today, especially our wives, and to the children wherever we see them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.